Welcome, everyone. It's a blessing to worship the Lord together. A few announcements as we begin. Uh, we do have a draft roster that Trudy has put in the foyer, so if you signed up for something, please check it to make sure that you're available for those dates. Uh, and uh, you'll also be receiving an email that you can check and actually read and find out if, if you're there. So uh, please do that. Uh, also today we're having communion, so how that works is toward the end of the message, um, it's for anyone who's born again, who's following Jesus as Savior, they'll be a couple of people bringing by the cup and the bread and just uh, receive it during the song, and then I will pray and we'll receive together. So that's open to everyone. And finally, for Tribe, the young adult group, there is a gathering at the Roches after church next week that that group's invited to, so you're welcome and come on out and enjoy that. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us all. Thank you that you are praiseworthy, that you are a glorious God that we serve who has given everything for us. Thank you that you've given us life, that Christ is our life, that you have forgiven us, that you've given us a hope of eternity with you forever, that we can know you, we can walk with you, we can serve you, and that your ears are open to our cries, that you hear our prayers and answer them. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth of it, and pray that it would just touch our hearts today that we'd be receiving that word that implanted word into our, our hearts, that it would be fruitful, and that you'd be glorified through this time. And I thank you for those who have come, to those who have uh, tuned in, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless and minister your truth to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 1, if you'll turn there. Have you guys ever had the, the situation, you're making a tea or coffee, and Something interrupts you, you, you get a text, you need to make an email, you, in turning on the computer, you're like, oh yeah, I need to check this, and, and 30 minutes later, you realize you never made your tea, or you made your tea, but you never drank your tea, and you're like, wow, time flies when you're having fun, or you've gone to the shops for one particular item, there's one thing I need, but oh, since I'm there, I'll get these other things, and as you come back, heavily laden with bags, you realize that you did not buy the one thing that prompted the whole special trip. I have definitely had that happen. And, I mean, the, the shop displays and the specials, they grab our attention, and we, we just, uh, we lose sight of the whole reason why we went to the shops in the first place. And uh, we're in a world that does not promote Jesus Christ as king. We're in a world that's not reminding us about him. It's reminding us about a lot of other things and maybe even painful things of our past, things that we're dealing with now in the present. But keeping our eyes on Jesus, being fixed on him, we, we recognize uh, our need for grace and our need to have grace and to continue in it. Now, Hebrews, it was written to a people not familiar with democracy or a parliamentary democracy as we have, but theocracy, monarchy, and tyranny. They, their ties were traditional values that had been established by the law of Moses. Now, our strong ties, they're quite individualistic. I was looking at some sites to make sure I wasn't totally off base with my assessment. But our, we have a strong respect for the freedom of the individual in Australia. We have a, a love, like kind of a hate of authority, but also respect of authority at the same time. Uh, we value equality, people having a fair go. You could add many other things to this list, but I think that those are some values that we would share. 
And Jesus said things that graded on the Pharisees and they graded on the Gentiles. They did not agree with everything he said. And I think as believers, we can have this concept that, well, if Jesus said it, I agree with it. And I've actually implemented it in my life by faith. But the reality is there are things Jesus says that should shock us, that should give us pause to consider, does my life actually reflect my belief of that truth? Or am I just like living according to what's right in my own eyes? The place that the Jews needed to come to is the same place that we need to arrive at, that Jesus is God-made flesh, that he has an eternal priesthood. The law has been abolished as a means of drawing near to God and finding any righteousness. That faith in Christ, that's the way that we're made righteous, that we're made holy and set apart unto him. And since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12, 28, it says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The grace of God is the thing we have to hold on to. It must be precious to us. We have to value that. We have to keep this the main thing. In writing, you want to keep the main thing the main thing? Well, in following Jesus, we need to keep grace the main thing because we need it and we need to walk in it. That's the way we can serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And so chapter 13, it it lists a bunch of practical ways that we can have grace. And uh, it's for you to practice, not to think, well, What about them? No, it's for us to take personally and not to allow the negligence of others to distract us from our responsibility before God to walk in grace. Hebrews 13, verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. The writer of Hebrews encouraged readers to continue in brotherly love. Those who claim to love God must love their brethren also. We're to do good, especially to those of the household of faith, but also to those outside the body. We've been united with Christ. We're one in him. So those who are being mistreated, it's like we can take that personally and say it's as if I'm chained with them. I'm going to care. If you guys were chained and imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, you would know it. And we have brothers and sisters throughout the world who are suffering persecution, who are chained and mistreated and overlooked for promotion and, and uh, cut off from family and friends because of the gospel. And so we should care for them. We should pray for them. We should do what we can to minister to them. The word for love here is Philadelphia. That's brotherly love. It's kindness, fraternal affection. It's one thing to do one deed out of love but to continue in it. That's the challenge we're given by Christ. I have a brother, and it was apparent to me, especially in our teen years, that we are not the same. That we think very differently. We held very different beliefs and opinions. And we took different actions based upon those. Now, despite the differences, we were still brothers. That was an under our, that was like an, an undergirding part of our relationship. That's how we identify with each other as brothers, not by our differences. I think in the body of Christ, we can make the mistake to begin to define people by how we're different. Oh, that church, they believe this and this. That's different than us. Or this person, they kind of hold to this doctrine, so that's different than me. Instead of being united by Christ and having grace, 
with one another. Grace is seeing things God's way. It's choosing to extend that kindness and mercy that we receive from God that we don't deserve. Grace is shown in providing hospitality to strangers. Coming to Australia, there were many people who showed us grace. They brought us into their homes for meals, let us stay at their place when we didn't have a place to stay, and we were strangers to them, but they showed that grace to us. And we have an opportunity every week when we meet someone that we haven't met before to extend that grace and kindness um, as if we were entertaining an angel sent by God. There's a couple of passages in, where Abraham and Lot, they both offered hospitality to strangers who turned out to be angels, messengers from God, and the result was that Abraham and Sarah were told, you're going to have a child in a year's time, that this new life was going to come. Lot, he invited the strangers into his house to protect them, and they intervened and saved him and his household from being destroyed when Sodom and the surrounding cities were overthrown. We should be gracious to strangers, not because they could be an angel in disguise, but we're part of the body of Christ. And our call is to love him like Jesus loves us. He was the servant of all. The irony is, if you knew that that guest coming to your house or that person coming to church was an angel, it wouldn't be grace why you'd be serving them differently. It's because of you know they're, they're an angelic messenger. They have contact with God. They will report back to him and say how things went. So I want to roll out the red carpet for them. I'm at their beck and call like until they leave. Like I hope they leave sometime. Because I have actually a life that I want to live, right? If you knew that there was an angel, you might treat them a little differently. But how cool it is when we've extended hospitality to a stranger in such a way, if we find out later that was an angel, we have nothing to regret. We're like, I did that as unto the Lord. And it was out of grace. And God knows. Hebrews 13, verse 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I don't know how many romantic comedies end in a wedding, but it seems like a lot of them do. It's not really my genre of choice personally, but I've sat through enough to know that that's how they have to end. You know, those period films, it has to be a wedding or a double wedding. That's just, that's how it has to end. It's like the fairy tale ending. Uh, and people who don't believe in God, they value the ideals of a monogamous marriage. And the Bible stands completely at odds with the concept of marriage equality today because God has narrowly defined marriage as between one man and one woman. It's a covenant made between him that he joins people together as one flesh, a man and a woman. It's a physical and spiritual union before God who saw it was not good that man be alone. Like all good things God has made, Satan has worked to undermine this. He has undermined the covenant he has hijacked sex out of the marriage relationship, and the sinful results are legion. The worship of idols that was often combined with sexual activity in the ancient world, and we even read that some have forbidden marriage, that 
If you really want to draw close to God, marriage is not for you. That's written in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 3, where it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Remaining unmarried does not mean that you are more faithful to God. And it says here that satanic deception would forbid it as if it's not something that's good because God created it. God established it. And married Christians, some really struggle with the concept of sex as a gift from God. Something to be like, okay, you can enjoy it, but not too much. It's really procreation. It can't be for pleasure. But the fact is, God has given us the sexual relationship in marriage. It's not a burden or a tool for leverage or control. And just because the world has combined sex with lust and perversion, the marriage bed is undefiled. It says so here. The marriage bed before God is undefiled. And God has a means for each man to have his own wife, a woman to have her own husband, free from all sexual sin. We read that in 1 Corinthians 7, 2. And then we're reminded that God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Fornication is sexual activity outside of marriage. Adultery is unfaithfulness in marriage. The King James put fornicator, a word that we don't use often, whoremonger, which means uh, lust without restraint. Someone who does that. Uh, in this world, isn't it unheard of that sex would be confined to marriage? Like, this is the right way. It must be within this relationship. We, we see totally different in the world. But man who created, God who created man and marriage has the authority to say what's immoral, to say what's sinful, and he has the right to say what's righteous and good. Jesus says if you look lustfully on a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So he's looking not only at the physical acts, but the, the condition of the heart and the way that you look at people. That's how piercing his gaze is. And this issue of sexual sin, it goes beyond the body. It reaches the soul, as we read in Proverbs 6.32. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. That is destructive. The bonds created through sex, they last. It's only the power of Jesus who's conquered sin, who's conquered death that can free us from those condemned and ensnared by it. And I like that verse 5 continues on in talking about being free of covetousness and being content. So be content in, with your spouse. Be content to not be married in this season. Paul said it's better to marry than to burn, and you do Christ no dishonor to, do, to choose the honorable covenant of marriage by faith in him. You can be content married, unmarried, in our possessions and our station because God is with us. That's the big point that comes out of this. Because God's with us, because we have him, regardless of what we have or don't have, we can be satisfied. Because he's supplying all of our needs. He is our life. Now, there's a quote here that we find a, a few quotes in the Old Testament. And I'll just read them to you. God said this to Jacob in Genesis 28:15: Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go 
and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Joshua, he's on the cusp of going into the promised land. There's all these enemies in front of him. There's a, a million plus people to uh, lead. And it says this in Joshua 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. David, speaking to Solomon, when the power of rule is passing to him, and that's a pretty big job, uh, being king and filling your dad's shoes, which no one could. And this is what David said in 1 Chronicles 28, 20. Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. These guys all needed courage to do the job that was set before them because it was bigger than them. It was overwhelming. But God said, I will be with you. And they could be confident in him, in his promises. And I like David's like, hey, going ahead. I know God will be with you as he's been with me. God spoke to the Hebrews. Now he speaks to us that we are to be free of covetousness, to find contentment in God alone because he's with us and he's faithful. That second quote, it's from Psalm 118, 5 and 6 that says, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is with us. His love casts out all fear. And because we've chosen God's side, we know he's on our side, that he is our refuge. He is our shield, our provider, and our contentment is found in him. He remains good even when life is hard. Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 8. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This was written to Hebrews who many of their leaders and followers of Christ who had spoken the word of God to them, they had been martyred. They had died. It talks about their end here. Consider the end of their faith, how they lived out their lives. Jesus was crucified. Stephen was stoned. James, he was killed by Herod in prison. Paul, beheaded. And Paul wrote this in a letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have, you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Now, Paul wasn't looking to make followers of himself. He wanted people to be following Jesus. He was like, imitate me as I follow Christ. We are to follow such faith, it says in Hebrews 13, 7. Notice that. Don't follow the man, don't follow the woman. It says, whose faith follow. Follow their faith. Follow the way they lived. Pattern yourself with those disciplines of seeking the Lord. These people would have seen people. I think the Hebrews would have seen people trying to get off the hook, blubbering to get away from the punishment of death when they offended the Pharisees or they offended the Romans. And they're kind of backtracking and backpedaling, trying to get out of trouble. And they're saying, but look at those guys who have died for Christ. Look at how they've laid their lives down to follow him. Follow their faith. They stayed strong till the end. 
They were bold in the face of death. They were content in Christ. They knew that being departed from this body was to be in the presence of the Lord. And for us, as we're following Jesus, it's good for us to remember people who have gone before, who were faithful to Christ in their days. They were bold and steadfast to the end. Just like those people in Hebrews 11 at the end. That's the faith we ought to be following. And we are following Jesus. Verse 8, that is a great verse that shows Jesus is God. Is there any person that you could say this about? That they are the same yesterday, today, and forever? Nope. There's no other person but Jesus that we can say that about. We know of Christians. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, one day we shall be changed, right? God is immutable. That means unchangeable. He does not change. So Jesus, being God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God. He's the same Lord. The things he has promised, he will do without fail. Every other group of people, I think of theologians, philosophers, musicians, actors, it doesn't matter, they change over time. There's bands that I'm like, this is a great album. And then they got really political on the next album. I'm like, yeah, it's not quite as good. Or they embrace this other approach to music. Like, ah, I like the first stuff better because they changed. Theologians, they may have one view, but then over time they gain more understanding and knowledge and their views change a little bit because it's more clear. Like Apollos, he's preaching, but he didn't even know that he, he didn't understand what Jesus accomplished on Calvary. So Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside to teach him the way of Christ more perfectly. So his teaching changed. He was zealous for the Lord, but he, he wasn't quite right on. So they pulled him aside and talked to him. I think as we get older, it's like we, I used to play sports and do things that I don't even try to attempt anymore because of injuries or age. I'm like, it's just not worth it. You were a different person before you were born again. So this could not be said of you. And you will be different when you are glorified in the presence of God forever. You will be changed, but Jesus does not change. We can have all confidence in him. I like how the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary puts it. Jesus Christ, who supported your spiritual rulers through life, even until their end yesterday in times past, being at once the author and finisher of their faith, remains the same Jesus Christ today, ready to help you also, if like them you walk by faith in him. Praise the Lord, he also helps us according to his grace. When we're not even looking for him, when we've forgotten about him, he knows us. He seeks us out. He calls our name. Like that good shepherd of the lost sheep, he will leave the 99 to pursue the one and rejoices when he finds it. Hebrews 13, 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied, by them, occupied with them. In the infancy of the church, there were many deceivers who came in and sought to draw people away from the simplicity of the gospel and following Jesus. They were pressured to return to the law, to be circumcised. Um, there were others that were pushing the Gnostic heresies where there was a secret truth that they needed to discover. 
Uh, some claim to have visions and angelic visitations, uh, and their message violated the other scripture which had already been written. They sought to introduce Greek theology or a philosophy of the day. And some distorted the grace of God to make an excuse to continue sinning. So there were all these, uh, I guess, alternatives placed before the church rather than walking by faith in Jesus Christ. And so they were told, don't be swept up in these various or strange doctrines. And various, that word means patchy, streaky, or spotty. Think of Jacob with Laban, right? He said, you've served me all this time, Jacob. How shall I pay you? And he says, well, why don't you give me all the spotted and streaked sheep and goats? So if they, and the way that you could tell was comparison. There was one that, were, that was all brown or all dark wool, one that was all white wool. And then anything that was spotty, they, they were put separately. And the only way that you can tell if a doctrine is spotty or streaked is because you've compared it with the pure word of God. And you can know, okay, there is some humanism that's mixed in there. There, there is uh, liberal uh, theology that's just not biblical. Or there is legalism. There's a return back to the law and trying to earn God's favor that he's already given us by grace. Cults and te heretical teachers, they'll distort the word of God to justify their beliefs. A strange doctrine it's not just like, oh, that's weird. It means something foreign, something foreign to the Bible. A common error is people have an opinion. They find a scripture that seems to support their opinion, and then they say, this is what the Bible says. Many have gone astray with that uh, practice, and that's called eisegesis. Our practice, my practice, is to exegete, to pull out of the text what the meaning is. So it's not having an idea, it's like I, we read the Bible, we observe what it says, we draw the meaning out of the text, and we walk according to it by faith in Christ. And that's going to change me, because my life naturally does not agree with the Word of God, and so I need to be guided and led and guarded by this, so I can know truth from error. We can only recognize those strange or spotty doctrines when we're familiar with the Word of God and the help of the Holy Spirit. And that these false doctrines, they're more than distracting, they're destructive. They will draw us away from Jesus and to something else. As we read in Corinthians, Galatians, other books, now in Hebrews, there was pressure placed on the Hebrews to return to law, to go down a legalistic path, to say salvation is achieved by Jesus plus something rather than faith in Christ alone. A big issue in the church is mentioned here, eating kosher, eating the foods that were allowed and being stumbled by uh, foods offered to idols. And they were occupied, they were even preoccupied with this. It was, well, really a big deal if a Jew was to even eat with a Gentile. It was scandalous among the Jews, not to mention what they're eating. And this error that had entered in the church early was corrected by Paul in Galatians 2. Because they were pulling him up on it. They're saying, what, you ate with Gentiles? What's this we're hearing? And he's like, hey, this is, we are not to be living like Jews around Jews, but then, um, you know, depart from the Gentiles that we're, we've been eating with for days, but because the Jews have come, we're trying to put on a show for them. No, we need to be consistent. We need to walk in grace. 
Grace was the imperative, not eating kosher or avoiding meat because it might have been offered to an idol. Did eating kosher ever save a soul from sin? No. Did it ever cleanse anyone, their heart? No. Did eating meat provided by God condemn a soul to hell? No. So it's like, don't be focusing on that. That's the wrong application. It's contrary to the grace of God. We must have grace. That's the way we can serve him reverently with holy fear. Personal conviction, it can lead to condemnation. We can condemn others who are, practice things differently and have different views than us, and the result of that is drifting from God's grace. So whatever you, whenever your personal opinion becomes more important or of greater emphasis in your life than the gospel and the doctrines of Jesus, things that they actually taught in the Bible, we're drifting towards error. So we have to be on our guard. So what is grace then? Well, we need look no other place than Christ. It's favor from God we do not deserve, we cannot earn. Grace is God choosing to be born as a human being. Grace is God choosing to suffer on this planet like a sinner when he hadn't sinned at all. Grace is Jesus calling disciples to follow him whom he knew would misunderstand him. They would deny him. They would betray him. Grace is Jesus teaching the truth even when he knew it would anger people to the point that they would uh, plot to take his life. Grace is Jesus going to the home of a Pharisee to eat a meal who, didn't even, who wasn't even sure if he was a prophet from God, much less the Messiah, and he ate with him. Grace is Jesus washing the disciples' feet when they all should have been washing his feet. Grace is Jesus nailed to a cross and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is grace. Grace is Jesus offering forgiveness to you and me when we deserve hell, giving us himself in heaven forever. That is grace. We can't earn that, but he's offered it to us. And he loves us just because he does, out of his goodness. Hebrews 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore... Let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. In Judaism, one of the privileges of the priests and Levites was to eat of the sacrifices brought to the temple. However, no one was permitted to eat their own sin offering. If you brought a sin offering and the priests offered that, they could eat that. That would be food for them. And the rest of the, the blood would be brought into the holy place or to the altar. And then the, the rest of the carcass would be taken outside and burned in a clean place. Now, on the Day of Atonement, when it was the sin for the nation, they were not to eat that because that was the sin offering for their sin. They could not eat that. Verse 10, notice how it says the priests served the tabernacle. There was this ministry of the tabernacle that they served. But Jesus, he served us in giving himself as a sacrifice for our sin, 
to provide atonement so sinners could be born again and forgiven. The eternal priesthood of Jesus, that's been a big part of Hebrews, that it's of the order of Melchizedek, it's far greater than any priest under the law. A better sacrifice, a superior altar. Through Christ, we have a sanctified altar and an acceptable sacrifice. Like He is our altar. He is our sacrifice. Now, some churches, they have an altar up front. They say, come forward to the altar, and it's a place to pray or to repent, to receive the Holy Spirit, to be born again. We draw near to Jesus. He is our altar. We draw near to him. So it's not a point on the map where we say, well, there's the altar. It's a physical thing. Jesus is our altar. He is our sacrifice. And we draw near to him to receive of him by faith. We are partakers of his grace. We are recipients of his mercy. In a few minutes, we're going to receive communion. We get to partake of the the broken body of Christ and his blood, those symbols that show us that he is. He's died and there's been a transformation inside. We've received him by faith. And so we eat, we drink to show of the transformation he has made within us. We are partakers. It's like we get to eat of that offering. They couldn't, but we can. Verse 13, it concludes the right response. Go forth to Jesus outside the camp. Hebrews were to go beyond the the bounds of Judaism, which rejected the Lord and bear his reproach. The law was weak. It was unprofitable. It was abolished by the gospel as a means of righteousness. The reproach of Christ was a small thing to carry in comparison with the glory that's revealed through him. Christians, they would be shunned. They would lose business. They would be hated. They would be persecuted for following Jesus as a Messiah rather than Moses. They were reminded, here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. What did it say about Abraham? It said he sought a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was the Lord. And and these people lived in a time where they had a temple. They had a land. But that land, that, that temple was not going to be continuing This world isn't going to last forever, but in him we have life. Continuing in verse 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the most holy day of the year in Judaism, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, it was annually observed on the 10th day of the seventh month. And on that day, people were to assemble, they were to fast from food, uh, presented an offering by fire, and do no work. And they were really to humble themselves and in sorrow for their sin on that day. And the penalty for not observing that uh, day of atonement was severe. It says this in Leviticus 23, 29, and 30. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. That's pretty heavy, right? It's like you're going to be destroyed, you're going to be thrown out of the camp, you're cut off from the nation and from God by extension if you do not humble yourself on this day. Consider the change that Jesus ushered in with this new covenant. He was despised, he was rejected. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. 
He was stricken by God. He was smitten and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastened so that we might have forgiveness and peace with God. The sins of the world were placed upon Jesus so we could be redeemed, so we could be forgiven. We could be saved from sin, hell, and death, and saved for heaven, given that eternal inheritance with him, co-heirs with Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, by Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we ought to do what? It says, offer the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Do you see the contrast between the two? The day of atonement, it's a day to, of sorrow, a day of sadness for your sin. That would have to be repeated the next year because you would continue to sin. You would make mistakes. Jesus was once for all offered for sin so that we can praise him. We can rejoice in him. We can continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God because of Jesus who once for all was a sacrifice for us. I just, it just doesn't get any better than this. We're forgiven and reconciled to God, not because we're sad or sorry because of our past or because of our mistakes, but because of what Jesus has done. And we can continually praise him for that. Yes, we should sorrow for our sin. Yes, we ought to repent when we realize we have sinned. But know your sins are forgiven in Jesus. And we are to rejoice continually in what he has done. The fruit of our lips... The grace of God, they dovetail beautifully. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and holy fear. Do you know that every sacrifice offered under law had to be seasoned with salt? Otherwise, it was unacceptable. You could bring in a perfect lamb or an ox, but if it was not offered with salt, not acceptable. Listen to what Colossians 4, 6 says. Our words, they ought to be seasoned with grace. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Like those sacrifices were seasoned with salt, so our words ought to be seasoned with grace. We can have the right answer, but it's wrong unless it's seasoned with the grace of God. Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. How does that grace get there? By being born again and receiving the sacrifice that Jesus has offered for you. Jesus did well, but he suffered on Calvary for sins, He's left an example of patience and obedience that we do well to follow. And we do receive communion together in obedience to the Lord who said that we do this in remembrance of him and to proclaim his death till he comes. At his death, it was a, a show of God's love for us, lost sinners, and that Jesus is returning. We can rejoice that he knows us and that he's coming and we'll be with him forever. We partake of the bread that symbolizes his body that was broken for us. And we drink of the cup, which represents the blood shed for our sins. And because we're partakers of his grace, we have become children of God. So we partake. Could you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. 
1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. We are called to follow Jesus. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Consider Jesus as he was nailed to the cross, the grace that flowed from his lips where he said, Father, forgive them. By grace through faith, we've been forgiven. We've been made righteous by Jesus, our good shepherd. By grace, we have an altar and a sacrifice that we partake of as children of God because of what Jesus has done for us. And we are enabled by grace to continually offer a sacrifice of praise that God delights to receive. Let's give thanks to God. Praise His name. In praying over this, just felt led to share that the sorrow and regret of past sins the pain of the present, in the current struggle, praise the Lord, we can continually offer a sacrifice of praise to Him that is acceptable by grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You that Jesus has shown us the way, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. We thank you that you are holy and righteous and just, and that if we confess our sins, you are just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We praise you, Lord, that you are faithful, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that we can look to you wherever we're at and be saved and delivered, and you give us a reason to praise you and to thank you. And Lord, I pray for those who are... uh, feeling distant from you, who are distant from you, who, who, to whom your grace seems a foreign thing. I ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see you even now, that we would look to you in thanksgiving, in faith, believing that we would offer a sacrifice of praise that's acceptable to you by grace through faith. We thank you, Lord, that you have taken all of our sin, all of our guilt upon yourself, that you have made a way for cleansing and forgiveness and righteousness to be imputed to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would receive that work and we'd rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen.